I know I'm going to knock that thing over. Well, by a show of hands, I'm curious how many of you here have someone in your family who is terrible at finding things around the house. Anybody have someone in your family like that? Now, ladies, keep your hands up if that someone happens to be your husband. As my good uh, friend Bob Menkel says, your marriage is showing. Um, There's a joke around the Thomas household. I'm actually not sure it's that funny, but uh, it's one that everyone else likes to use. And it goes like this, just a one-liner. Where's the butter? That's the joke. Where, where's the butter? Apparently, there's been a time or two that my wife, Lindsay, uh, has asked me to get the butter, and I've been standing at the fridge, and there's no butter anywhere. And she proceeds, after some goading, to reach over my shoulder and, and grab it right in plain sight. So, uh, so, so my family will often ask me and, uh, and uh, some others around the house, where, where's the butter uh, for those of us who are not all that gifted at finding things? To be fair, butter could be swapped out for other condiments. And I see you, uh, you've got the meme Lindsay sent me this week. My husband trying to find the ketchup bottle that is right in front of him. It's uh, that's the picture of me, I guess. And anyway, the, the point is that not all of us are that gifted at seeking and finding. Jesus, on the other hand, is very good at finding lost things. In fact, he's got a passion for it. It's what he said he came to do when he declared his purpose statement to the world in Luke 19.10. He came, Jesus that is, to seek and save the lost. That's why he came. So take your Bibles, if you would please, and open to Luke's Gospel, the 15th chapter. We're cresting a new chapter, a new hill this morning. Luke 15, beginning in verse 1. If you're using our church Bibles, that can be found on page 821. Luke 15, 1, page 821. Today, we're going to begin to see Jesus' lost and found parables. And let's pray one more time for God's help as we encounter His Word and seek to understand and apply it. Sovereign God, Your Word is before us. Your eternal, true revelation Sufficient for all we need in life and in godliness. And we pray now, Father, for the grace to see and understand it. For the, for the perspective to grow up into it. For the courage to run with it, Father. Would you, would you open our eyes to behold its beauty and its eternality. Lord, guard us from error now as we turn to your scriptures and guide us in your truth. We pray in Christ's mighty name. Amen. Let's read together, beginning in verse 1 of Luke 15. This is the word of the Lord. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you... 
Having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so. I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she's found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Man, so good. Well, you may be surprised to hear that the entirety of Luke 15, we've just begun it here, but for the whole rest of the chapter is considered one long parable. But this parable is unique in that it's a a threefold parable. It it branches off, this one, into three separate parts. And, And yet each part of this threefold parable, comprising the entire chapter of Luke 15, is accomplishing the same thing. Jesus is driving home the same point. Something valuable is lost... That lost thing gets found, and then there's this expression of sheer joy that bubbles up, so much so that it spills over, in each case, into a celebration, into a party. So we've already read the first two scenes of this parable in verse 3, following to verse 7, we see the parable of the lost sheep. Verses 8 to 10, we see the parable of the lost coin. And next week, we get to the third part of the parable, verses 11 all the way to the end of chapter 15. It's the parable of the lost son. Maybe you heard of that one before. Now, Benjamin wanted me to cover all three. But we were concerned about you getting bed sores here, uh, so we, we thought best uh, to just tackle the first two shorter ones today, and then we'll, we'll cover, Lord willing, the parable of the prodigal son, or the parable of the prodigal sons, perhaps more light, rightly understood next week. All right, so uh, before we jump into the deep end here, understanding or seeking to understand what's going on here at the beginning of Luke 15 with this uh, multifaceted parable, I think it's critical for us first to understand why Jesus is telling this parable in the first place. We've got, look at verse 1 with me here, Luke 15, verse 1, we've got two groups of people, or two groups of two peoples. We've got, in verse 1, that the tax collectors and sinners drawing near to Jesus. Now, these weren't loose categories. These were actually Groups of people that would have been rightly understood as very particular groups of people in Jesus' day and time. The tax collectors, we've talked about quite a bit, we won't rehash it all here, but these were Rome's lackeys. 
These were people who were paid and empowered by the military might of Rome to tax their fellow countrymen. And the system was so set up that uh, they, they were allowed to exact money. Uh, as long as they paid Rome her dues, they, they, they could tax as, as high as they needed to. And so these tax collectors were absolutely known for just squeezing the life and the resources out of their people. And they were seen as sellouts, right? They were lining Rome's pockets and their own at the expense of their brothers and sisters. Man, were they hated, these tax collectors. Not even allowed in the synagogue in most cases. And then you had the sinners. Now, we understand in a broad sense that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are all sinners before a holy and perfect God. But sinners here, this category here in the first century, was meant to be understood as flagrant sinners, notorious sinners, sinners that everybody in the town would have known about. We're talking about the thieves and the prostitutes and, and, and those who would uh, just out in front of everyone overtly be living a sinful lifestyle. These tax collectors and sinners... What are they doing? Verse 1. <laughs> well, they're coming to Jesus. They're drawing near to Him. And Jesus is glad for this. Jesus is welcoming this. But not everybody approves of these developments. Look at verse 2. We've got another uh, group of two. The Pharisees. And the scribes, you know, we, we talked about these categories before. Suffice it to say, these are the, the religious elites of the day. They're the experts in the law. That's what a scribe was. They're the, the teachers and the theological PhDs. These are people of tremendous influence and wealth and power in first century Palestine. And they see these sinners... They see these tax collectors coming to Jesus. What's the word the Bible used to describe their, their reaction in verse 2? Yeah. Grumbling. They're grumbling. And, and what's the nature of their grumbling in verse 2? They, they say, this man, speaking of Jesus, receives, he welcomes and eats with these tax collectors and sinners. By the way, eating was significant now as then in, in uh, such a beautiful sense. If, if you would welcome someone at table with you, you would really be sharing fellowship with them. There was a unique and significant bond that took place in the eyes of all in that culture when you would sit down to eat a meal with somebody. And Jesus is doing that. Say these... <laughs> Pharisees and teachers of the law, these scribes, with, with, with the refuse of society, as far as they can assess. Now, if they were seeing things through the lens of the gospel, through, through, through the lens of scripture, through, through the eyes of the shepherd, the good shepherd standing in front of them, their response to their own grumbling would be a glorious yes, amen. Jesus receives sinners and eats with them. That's really good news for us. Take a number, scribes and Pharisees, and get in line. 
Just like the rest of us. Jesus eats and receives. He doesn't need sinners. That's the wrong way to say that. Can we scratch that from the... Jesus receives sinners and he eats with them. But instead, of course, they're grumbling here. You might recall that word grumbling is a word we hear uh, quite often in Scripture. And it, it harkens back to the Old Testament where we see over and over and over again these stiff-necked Israelites wandering in the wilderness as God is leading them or intending to lead them graciously to the promised land. He's delivered them miraculously from their bondage in Egypt. He set them apart for, for His purposes as His covenant people. You know how they grumble along the way. These religious leaders then are just like their forefathers. What do they say? What's that old idiom? The, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, does it? So, the impetus for their grumbling, their, the reason why they're so bent out of shape with Jesus is that He is extending grace and fellowship, relationship to people that, quite frankly, they believe did not deserve it. This, friends, is the why of this parable. It's, it's the reason behind the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin and the parable of the lost son. Jesus, look at your Bibles now, told them this parable. Why? In response to their grumbling. In verse 2. So let's lock that in for the rest of the message today and, and next week as well. If we really want to understand this beautiful kingdom truth, these, these, this multifaceted parable from Christ, we've got to know why He told it. He was responding to the puffed up, self-righteous arrogance of these religious elites and seeking to teach them something about God's grace and mercy and forgiveness. All right, let's pick it up in verse 4. We see the first of these, uh, this triad of parables, the parable of the lost sheep. Verse 4, what man of you having a hundred sheep, that's lost sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not, what's that word? Leave. Leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that's lost until he finds it. Okay. Let's, right out of the chute, just immediately relieve some tension. What Jesus is not saying here is that he is in any way putting the 99 in danger in order to go find the one. That's not what's happening. It's not, friends, that Jesus loves the one more than he loves the rest of the 99. I mean, just follow the logic of the parable for crying out loud. If he were to leave the 99 and go find the one, and he got back, and, and the 99 or some of them were lost, what would he have to do? Amen, sister. <laughs> Lee is tracking today. I love it. So, so you understand? Jesus is not giving more love 
to this one sheep, Jesus is not putting the rest of the flock in danger as he goes out to find the sheep. The 99 are found. Isn't that the whole point? He's going to, to find the one who's not. The point of this mini parable, folks, is that the shepherd is utterly committed to saving and protecting all of his sheep. You hear it? I'm going to say it again. The point of the parable is that Jesus is completely and utterly committed to saving every single one of his sheep. He will not lose one. That's why we see this rhetorical language. Look at verse 4. Isn't it very matter of fact? Some of us are struggling with the math here. Wait a minute. You got a hundred sheep. I mean, what's one little sheep, Jesus? Kind of straying on the hillside. It could be dangerous in this rough and rugged terrain for you to go out and find this thing. Why don't you just cut your losses? That's, that's how we might think. That's not how a shepherd in first century Palestine would have thought. Jesus takes it for granted. Of course you would go find that sheep. Isn't that his language? Which one of you... If you put your shepherd hat on, if you had a flock of sheep and one went straying, wouldn't go do this. Jesus is seeking to say, of course you would go find the lost sheep. That's what a shepherd does. That's actually part of the problem. It's part of the reason why Jesus is telling this parable. These shepherds of Israel standing in front of him are the ones grumbling, are they not? These shepherds, these leaders of God's flock of his people, Israel, are not fulfilling their basic duties to care for God's sheep. God had warned them. Benjamin just read us that very acute warning in Ezekiel 34. You remember how, how there were bad shepherds over God's flock, bad leaders who were abusing his, his people, his sheep, for their own benefit, for their own gain. And God is not having it. Part of his indictment about these bad shepherds, I'll remind you what Benjamin just read a moment ago, is that they have not brought back the strays, that they've not sought out the lost. Let me read you the verse now, just as a reminder, Ezekiel 34, 4, the weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you've not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you've ruled them. What's a shepherd supposed to do? Care for the sheep. Feed the sheep. Love the sheep. Rescue the sheep. Find them when they stray. That's what it means to be a shepherd. And Jesus said, shouldn't a shepherd, you know, act like a shepherd? What's God's solution to these selfish Wicked shepherds. Well, we just read it. 
His solution is that He's going to do it, right? His solution to the shepherd problem over His people is that He Himself will be their shepherd. Let's, let's look at it here. I think we've got this one on the screen. Ezekiel 34, 11, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. You see what God says about shepherding his people? It's going to take a good shepherd, a perfect shepherd to do this job of rescuing his straying sheep. So does it make sense then when Jesus steps on the scene in John chapter 10, excuse me, John chapter 10 and says, I am the good shepherd. Does that make more sense in context? He told us, I am the fulfillment of all the law and the prophets. Everything that Isaiah wrote about and Moses wrote about and Ezekiel wrote about is wrapped up in who I am and what I'm doing. And I am the good shepherd. It's my job to seek and to save the lost. I love how Jesus says it in John 6, 39. This is, I think it's pretty clear. John 6, 39. And this is the will of him who sent me. It's Jesus speaking. Who sent Jesus? God the Father. Here's God's will, Jesus says, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up. At the last day. Why is Jesus here? Because he will find his lost sheep. Every, every one. This good shepherd knows his sheep by name. And he will not come back until they are his. Until they are found. Until they are safe. This is the driving point. The good shepherd here standing in their midst is utterly committed to finding his sheep. Which begs the question then, so what happens when he does? I'm glad you said that. Look at verse 5. What happens when the shepherd, the good shepherd finds his lost and straying sheep? Well, he, <laughs> what a tender picture. He picks it up and carries it on his shoulders. Now, confession. If this were me, I bet I'm not alone here, I would not be singing a tune as I made my way back home. Stupid sheep. <laughs> I got so much to do back at home. Don't you know I got 99 other sheep to tend to? Been out all day. I haven't ate, eaten. I haven't drank anything. And the word here isn't he found the lamb. He found the sheep. Have you ever seen a sheep? Now the 
size of sheep varies based upon the, the type of sheep you're talking about, but a full-grown sheep would have weighed somewhere between 70 pounds, perhaps over 100 pounds, some of the bigger ones. This thing's in such bad shape, it can't marry little lambet on the way home. He's, he's got to pick up this sheep. Maybe it's bloody. It's probably dirty out there. And he's got to throw that thing over his shoulders. We're talking a strength. We're talking hard work. We're talking labor. Grueling. And wherever this thing got himself stuck, the good shepherd makes his way home. I would not be a happy shepherd. That's because I'm not like him, and neither are you. The good shepherd is not like us. He is holy. He is set apart. He is perfect. And when he finds the sheep, he throws it on his shoulders with joy. What's he doing? He's rejoicing. He's rejoicing that he found that sheep. Not lecturing it on the way home about the merits of staying with the rest of the flock. He's, is he singing a hymn? I don't know what he's doing. He's thrilled. This is the attitude of the good shepherd when he finds his lost sheep. And then in verse 6, it, I mean, the joy just absolutely starts to compound. It's snowballing joy here. Look at verse 6. By the time he gets home, he invites his friends and neighbors to share in his joy, doesn't he? What's he say? Sa same root word, rejoice with me. This is such a big deal. I had a sheep and it was lost and now it's found. Let's party. And then Jesus pulls up for air, as it were, in verse 7 and says, just so. Translation, just like that. I tell you, there will be more joy, where? In heaven. More joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Those righteous persons. Remember how, who Jesus is telling the parable to? Those grumbling Pharisees? It's not that they didn't need to repent, right? We all need to repent. There is, according to God's assessment, none who are righteous. No, not one. We all need repentance. But here, those who don't realize their need for repentance... Like these stuffy Pharisees and scribes sitting there with their arms crossed, shaking their head at the tax collectors and the Pharisees. Jesus says, joy. That's how I see this. Joy. Which brings us to a huge point. Heaven, friends. You know, the heaven that was rejoicing in verse 7. Heaven is not for good people. You know that, right? 
We lie to each other all the time, especially here in southwestern Pennsylvania where there's this thin veneer of religiosity, a lot of God talk, a lot of people who can check the box and call themselves Christians. I've been to a lot of funerals. Heaven is not for good people. Heaven is for saved people. Heaven is for redeemed people. Heaven is for rescued people. Heaven is for Jesus' sheep, the ones who were lost, that He went out to save and find. That's who's on the rolls of heaven. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. And I know my sheep. And they follow me. The tax collectors and the sinners are coming. And there's all kinds of skeletons in their first century closets. And the head wags and the clucks of the tongue and the furrowed eyebrows from the religious elite. And Jesus says, they're mine. Good people don't go to heaven. There's no such thing as good people. People who are saved by grace through faith in Christ, rescued and clothed with His righteousness, cleansed by His blood. Those are the people who pass through the narrow door, who enter eternal life. The only thing that the redeemed contribute to their salvation is their lostness. That's it. That's what you and I contribute to our salvation, our sin. Notice here that the good shepherd does everything. All of the saving, all of the things, he does them. He's the initiator. The sheep are lost. And they don't tap out a Morse code signal to the shepherd to come get them. The shepherd seeks the sheep He is the initiator. He's the seeker. He is the finder. He is the one who carries them back home safely. And He's the chief celebrator. Is He not? Joy. Come, share in my joy. Jesus' clear challenge to these recalcitrant Pharisees and scribes in parable form is this. Agree with God. You're all, you're all bent out of shape, Pharisees and scribes. Agree with God. You're grumbling. You're, you're scoffing at the good shepherd who's come to seek and save the lost is in direct opposition to the God whose grace and beauty and joy and forgiveness you claim to support. Them's fighting words to the Pharisees. But Jesus isn't done. He rolls right into the next one. Second parable within a parable. Uh, This one's shorter. It's the parable of the lost coin. 
And we're not going to pick through it verse by verse. This parable has essentially the same message as the first one, but notice how this one emphasizes the thoroughness of the search. This lady loses a coin. The word here in Greek is a drachma. We, we don't really know what a drachma is. It's probably roughly equivalent to a denarius, a, a day's worth of wages. She's only got ten of them. This is probably her dowry, the only thing she's got to her name. By the way, this, these parables would have been so unsavory to the scribes and the Pharisees who were listening to Jesus. And they're pristine robes, and their full bellies, their positions of power and prestige. He tells them about a bunch of lowly shepherds, and then he tells them about a poor woman who's only got ten drachmas. But they're the heroes, aren't they, of the parable? The punchline is the same. Notice how the ratio changes as you go through this three-part parable. We go from uh, one out of a hundred to one out of ten, and next week we'll talk about one out of two being lost, or really two out of two being lost. But she's lost her coin. Look what she does. She lights a lamp. She sweeps the house. She, she searches, and, and not just searches, she searches diligently until she finds it. And the punchline is here in verse 10. Same phrase. Just so. Just like that, Jesus says. I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. It's as if Jesus is saying to these scribes and Pharisees, you might be grumbling, but heaven is erupting with joy. Jesus is combating grumbling with, with gladness. God is not stingy with His grace. And Jesus, who is standing before them, is mighty to save all types of sinners. Now, these Parables are fairly straightforward. They're being spoken about or spoken to these Pharisees to combat their grumbling, to superimpose over their discontent and their, their stuffy self-righteousness, gladness and joy from heaven. And before we hit some application and head off to enjoy our Super Bowl Sunday, I do think we would be remiss not to point out a pitfall to avoid as we seek to be not just hearers of these words from Jesus, but doers of them. Jesus loves, Jesus welcomes, Jesus eats with the worst of the worst sinners. And He is thrilled when they come into His fellowship. This does not mean, however, let's not overcorrect as we often say around here at FCC, this does not mean that we as the people of God should throw caution to the wind and put ourselves regularly, consistently in the most compromising, sin-saturated settings. Surely Jesus is not saying that. I mean, for crying out loud, that's half of what the book of Proverbs preaches to us. Don't be stupid, right? Jesus 
loved the tax collectors and the sinners. Jesus' heart erupted with joy and gladness as they approached Him and came near to Him and and sought fellowship with Him. But Jesus never participated in the sins of the tax collectors and the Pharisees. Some of us have have taken passages of Scripture like this and just, just run so roughshod over them. See? What we ought to be doing is eating with the tax collectors and the sinners. And so we throw ourselves into the situations where sin, which so easily entangles, can entangle and does entangle our hearts and lead us astray. Once again, newsflash, you're not Jesus. And neither am I. Remember, we just read about it not that long ago in Luke, how when Jesus encountered the leper, you know, the guy with that skin disease that if you touch it, transfers to you. And Jesus, this is bonkers, Jesus' superior cleanness transferred to the leper. Would that happen if you touched the leper? No. But that's what happens when Jesus touches the leper. Some of us want to pull ourselves up by our spiritual bootstraps with our cape of righteousness flapping in the breeze. Going to go soul winning in the club. And now we're just wrapped up in that sin too. Welcome. Don't you dare cross your arms, people of God, for any sinner that would come seeking refuge in Jesus. Joy! That's his response to the lost sheep. But don't presume to be Jesus and overapply this parable. We're told in the New Testament to hate even the garment stained by sin. Let's be wise and winsome. Let's care for and welcome and preach the gospel with clarity to to all sorts of people from all sorts of backgrounds. Let's scatter the seed everywhere. Let's not be foolish. All right, there's more to say there. We need to to wrap it up. We would... uh, We would also be remiss as we're thinking about ways to apply uh, the first two parts of this parable if we failed to mention just the, the bleeding theme of this passage, which is joy. You want to grow into the image and likeness of your Savior? You want to follow Jesus and have, as Scripture exhorts us to have, the very mind of Christ? Well, here's one thing that you ought to do then. You ought to cultivate joy. I don't think you can read these verses without grappling with what I'll call the importance of kingdom joy. The righteous response to the lost being found is effervescent, can't keep it down, joy. Joy's just plastered over this passage. Count them up if you can. The number of references here at the beginning of Luke 15 to joy or rejoicing. Verse 5, verse 6, verse 7, verse 9, verse 10. 
And you got to see this if we're looking at this scripture rightly and seeking to apply it. Whose joy is it? Whose joy, we should ask ourselves, is at the very center of this passage? Well, it's the joy of the finder, isn't it? It's the joy of the seeker. It's the joy of the sacrificer. It's the joy of the Father in heaven. It's the joy of His angels. God's approach to a wretched sinner that He has reeled in is not a cool, polite indifference. God's approach, God's posture to a sinner who's, who's, who's coming to Jesus is not a belabored sigh. He's celebrating and He is inviting us, church, to join in the celebration. God's joy is bigger than we know. No one, listen, no one is happier No one has more delight when a lost sinner is found than Jesus. After all, it's His joy. Two two passages I'll throw at you here before I show you some resources. Matthew 25, 23. Many of us know this one. When we go home, we long to hear those words, Well done, good and faithful servant. Matthew 25, 23. This is the back half of that verse. Enter into the joy of your master. What's heaven? Simple. Heaven is Jesus' joy. Psalm 1611. I love this one. We say it often around here. In your presence, the psalmist says to the Lord, is fullness of joy. Joy, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So follow me here. If the Christian journey begins when a lost sheep gets found and ends for all eternity with joy, if it culminates with joy, then should not joy mark our very lives? After all, it is a part of the fruit of the Spirit, is it not? So friend, if you're living, and I've been here, If you are living a rather morose and joyless life as a follower of Jesus Christ, perhaps it's time to stop and ask, am I missing something, Lord? Please grow me up, Father, into the joy of my salvation. Isn't that what David called it when he was repenting of his like, whoa, sin in Psalm 51? Restore unto me the what? The joy of my salvation. That's what it is. The byproduct of salvation is is joy. Salvation is a thing of joy. And that's what Jesus is inviting us into. To celebrate it in our own lives. About our own redemption. And to celebrate it over and over and over again among the people of God. As the lost sheep by the grace and power of Jesus Christ get found. May we not sit here at Friendship Community Church with our arms folded spending our Christian life grumbling our way through our obedience. Let's pursue here in 2024 the joy of the Lord, the joy of our salvation. 
All right, I'm going to show you two things, and we're done. The first is something that Benjamin and others continued to announce here from up front. This is a physical copy of our church directory. I'm looking at Patricia. She did a lot of work on this. Thank you, Patricia, and so many others. We know that this directory is a work in progress. We got all kinds of errors. I just heard about another one before I came up today. We're sorry. We're, we're doing the best we can. We'll continue to get more and more accurate as, as things go along. But this is more, this directory, more than just a helpful tool to begin to put names and faces together. And boy, is it helpful for that. You know what else this thing is a fantastic tool for? Prayer. Prayer. You know what would be a fantastic idea is if the saints here at Friendship Community Church who are celebrated in the halls of heaven are also people whose names that you know and people that you pray for. The church is not this building. The church is not my preaching. The church is not its programs. The church is the people, the sheep, bought by the blood of the Savior. And we ought to celebrate them. It starts with knowing their names. And, and I need help too, right? Great tool. Uh, you can pick up a hard copy in my office. If we give them all out, we'll just print some more if you'd like. And, and you haven't received an electronic copy, you can, you can email us. You can talk to Benjamin or Patricia or Patty or, or myself, and, and we'll get you hooked up. Pray through this thing. Let's be people who celebrate the trophies of grace that God has won through Jesus Christ. One more thing I'll show you. Pray through the directory. That's one way to be cultivating joy and celebrating among God's people. Another thing that you could do is pray for those you'd never normally think to pray for. To pray for those even who are oceans away. To pray even, like Jesus taught us, for our enemies. And a, and a tool that's been around for a while, but I've just been introduced to it with my family, uh, that I want to recommend to you is uh, something called the Voice of the Martyrs prayer calendar. We've got a picture up there for you. I don't know if you can see it up there. Uh, I, got a, I got a hard copy here as well. This thing is beautiful. It's a prayer calendar that just walks people through God's work in the world, especially in hard-to-reach and persecuted places. Let me, let me share, you, share with you just a couple simple examples of things that uh, we've been praying for uh, in our family as we're working our way through this, this calendar. Again, I would recommend this as a resource for you to do the same. Uh, I'm going to go to January. We're not that uh, long into the year. Uh, January 14th, just by way of example, praying for like one country or, or one situation around the globe a day. Listen to this. Kazakhstan, January 14th. Pray that the government observers monitoring unregistered churches will hear the gospel and turn to Christ. What a prayer. Do you understand what that means? The government monitors who have been sent to spy on the churches preaching the gospel. They're praying for those people to hear the gospel while they're at those churches and come to faith in Jesus Christ. What a beautiful way to pray. I would have never thought to pray for that without a tool to help like this. Here's, here's one more. Just yesterday's prayer. Vietnam. 
February 10th. Pray for An, a Vietnamese teenager who was attacked with a machete because of her witness for Christ. All of a sudden, my problems, my first world problems, don't quite seem as bad as I begin to pray for the persecuted church out there. How do you cultivate joy? Well, you do it by seeing and savoring and valuing the things that Jesus values. The good shepherd, the sheep that he died for, here, church directory, and all throughout the world. If you want a copy of this, by the way, Church of the Mar- or Voice of the Martyrs prayer calendar, you can go onto their website and get it for free. And if you don't know how to do that, just, just text or email me. My information is right there in your bulletin, and I would be happy. I'm not very good at checking my email. My wife would be happy <laughs> to, to follow along behind me and send you the link. Joy. You know, several years ago, uh, we have some daily bread as uh, devotional resources out there. Some of you read through those. I confess that's just not part of my, my daily reading, but I, I was made aware of this uh, submission to the daily bread back in 2018. There's a, a man by the name of David Rope who knew a non-Christian named Edith. Now, that's important. Her name is Edith. Edith didn't know the Lord. Edith was opposed to Christianity and the God of the Bible. She was bitter, even hostile against it. But one day, in a moment of brokenness, she decided for whatever reason, through the prompting of the Holy Spirit, to to walk into a church nearby her home. And Edith, there at that little church, encountered a pastor preaching through this passage in Luke chapter 15. And it was an old school church with an old school Bible reading from the old school King James Version, a good translation, not the one that we primarily use here, but a good translation. So when the pastor there read through Luke 15.2 in the King James, it sounded like this, this man speaking of Jesus, receiveth sinners and eateth with them, only that's not what she heard. Her name is Edith, and so what she heard was, this man, Jesus, receives sinners and eateth with them. And so this prodigal decided that if there was a Christ like that, if there was a Savior like that, who would love a sinner like her, she ought to, like these tax collectors and sinners were doing, she ought to come close to him. She ought to explore his claims. And she did, and she encountered forgiveness and salvation in Jesus. And you know, that's not a bad tact, is it? This man receiveth sinners and eateth right along with him. Just another one of those sinners, including Edith. I would be so bold as to say every one of these sinners in this room today, myself included, could substitute our name in there. This man receives sinners. 
and Zeb with him and Jim with him and Joy with him and Philip with him and Jordan with him and Mike with him. This is who we are. Beggars before the grace of God who have found the bread of life, now seeking to share that joy with other desperate sinners just like us. I'm going to close by singing an old one, perhaps the most famous hymn in uh, the English language today, Amazing Grace. How sweet, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me I once was, here's the parable, I once was lost, but now, because of the good shepherd, I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Let's pray and we'll sing it. Father, we love you, and we love the gospel. Oh, how we love Jesus, who came to seek and save even me even us. Thank you for his sacrifice on our behalf. That he would take on on the cross in his body on the tree our sin, our shame upon himself and, and grant to us his righteousness, his forgiveness. Lord, we pray that we would be ruined with joy because of the gospel. We pray that we who were once lost and are now found would continue to celebrate and rejoice in the joy of our salvation. And Lord, would you give us the grace, would you give us the passion to share this gospel of the risen Lord with this watching world around us, with our friends and families, even with our enemies. And as they come, be they Pharisees or scribes or tax collectors or sinners, Father, may we rejoice and lock arms together as we run hard after Christ. We pray in His matchless name. Amen.